The book of Galatians has time and again been used by God to begin a deep work in the hearts of his people. It has been referred to as the Magna Carta of the early church, the Declaration of Freedom. It would seem that each time God's people lose sight of the gospel of freedom and grace, God uses this book of Galatians to bring about a renewed excitement, a renewed passion for what real Christianity is all about, Jesus plus nothing. Let's join our teacher, Ross Gilbert, of Crossways to Life, as we study the book of Galatians to discover what we have been freed from in order to be freed to. Well, tonight is a... Is going to be a packed night. I don't know if we'll even get uh, uh, finished all I want to get uh, done tonight. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm excited. Um, tonight seems to, at least in my head, all fit together. And now the question is, can I get what's in my head out? And that might be a scary thought for, for some of you. Um, what we're going to look at really is, is this issue of law versus grace. And, and, you know, it's interesting. We sometimes refer to it as law and grace. But, you know, a better term would, I think, be law or grace. Because, you see, there's some things in life that are an either-or, right? You are either, um, either in a room with the lights are on or the lights are off. There's no in-between, right? You are, you are either uh, somewhere where it is above zero degrees Celsius or below zero degrees Celsius. There's, there's no in-between. It's either above or below. Um, you're either in Canada or you're not in Canada, right? I mean, it's, it's an either-or sort of proposition. And some things in life are the same way. And that's the case with law and, or really, or grace. Law and grace are not to be mixed. If you try to mix them, they're no longer the same. They're in either-or principle with law versus grace. And so what we're going to look at is, is this either-or principle in chapter 3 of Galatians. And, and what I want you to notice here is that really chapter 3 of Galatians is all about faith. And, and, and I did a, a quick word count, and, and the word law appears, I think, 15 times in chapter 3, and the word faith appears 14 times. They are the two most popular words in the whole chapter, except for, I think, the and or or and and, you know, the common words. But in terms of the actual words, faith and law are appearing 14 and 15 times respectively. And, and really what Paul's trying to contrast is this idea of living under the law versus or living by faith. And, and that's what we're going to discover. And what Paul's going to do here in chapter 3 is he's going to lay out these six different arguments to make his case. And, and, and we're going to try and see. I don't know how many we'll get through tonight, uh, but we'll try and get through all six of them if we can. But we're going to see what, what Paul is getting at when he's describing this system of living. Does that make sense? All right. Well, with that in mind, why don't we open up with a word of prayer then? Heavenly Father, I'm excited about tonight because tonight is where we start to get into the, the, the deep part of the gospel, the deep part of, uh, of Galatians, where we start to explore more about this, this new way of living. And Father, you know how my, my heart is pounding right now with excitement and, and nervousness about trying to, to share all that you've revealed to me. And, and I confess my dependence upon you, realizing that the only hope we have of ever seeing what it is you want to show us is by depending upon you, myself included. These people don't need to hear from me. They need to hear from you. And so I look forward with great anticipation what it is you're going to say tonight to us all. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Chapter 3. New chapter. And, uh, you know, when we, when we, you know, start a new chapter in a book, we, we generally think, okay, new chapter, new topic, new theme. Let's start something from scratch. Is that what Paul is doing here in chapter 3 of Galatians, you think? No. The chapter, actually, the chapter breaks, that's man's. God didn't put in chapter 3, verse 1. He, he didn't say, okay, new chapter here. Let's start a new theme and topic. Uh, that's just what, God, what man has added, I think, to help us understand things. But it's not a new part. It's not a new section in chapter 3 here. Really, what happens in chapter 3, chapter 3 is connected to chapter 2. It's just a, a continuation of what he's been talking about. And, and really, you know, for the last, I think, 36 verses, ever since um, verse 9 of chapter 1, the last 36 verses, Paul has been giving his history, giving a testimony, and all the background about, you know, who he is and the authority and, and how he came to understand the gospel and all the persecution he faced and, and, and what he, how he used to persecute the church and then how he had to stand up uh, in the Jerusalem council to defend the gospel against the Judaizers, then defend it against uh, Cephas, against Peter, when he tried to backslide against, away from it. So he's, he's laid all that history out and now we get into chapter 3 and he's now going to return his focus back to the churches of Galatia. He's going to come back to them now and start to address them with the central issue. And remember, the book of Galatians is not a book of evangelism. It's not primarily a book of how you become saved. I mean, there's great truth in there, and it goes into great detail about how we can be saved. But the book of, uh, of Galatians is primarily a book of sanctification, a book of how do I now live in light of being saved. So it's not how do I get saved, how do I live now that I am saved. Does that make sense? So he's going to now come, and so in verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, that being the major focus of this book, the life that I now live in the flesh, in this body, how do I live? By faith. Now, let's define this word faith. How would, how would we define what faith is? What are some suggestions? Sitting in these chairs, yeah, you're, you're, you're trusting they're not going to break, yeah? Well, from, from experience, possibly, we, we automatically do it. Okay. Our background in church, maybe. Okay. How would we define faith? What's the definition of faith? Yeah, okay. So we got, we got one was full trust. And what was the one you said... Believing in things that are not as though they were. That's good. I think that's it's similar to Hebrews 11, right? Hebrews 11, verse 1. And that's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen, right? It's a bit different than just believing in things that aren't, right? It's, it's, the, it's the conviction of things unseen. It's the assurance of things hoped for. That's, that's an excellent definition, but, you know, for me, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That's a little over my head, I think, I guess. Um, I, I, I grapple with that because it, it's not something that I can tangibly grab. Maybe you can, and you know, you're smarter than me, God bless you. But for, for me, it's, it's, a, it's a definition that's a little airy, a little out there, a little too, you know, dare I say, mystical, that, that translation. Things, uh, the conviction of things unseen or the assurance of things hoped for. Told you're going to go to a, told by somebody that's given you a gift, a little 
Disney World at a certain date in the future? Would that be unseen? Well, that's, that's an example of faith. That would be an example, but we're still trying to define it. Now, I think... I, <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Um, um, I, I think a good definition of the word faith actually appears in Romans. Turn to Romans 4 if you've got your Bibles. And in Romans 4, and, and towards the last half of it, we're going to look at the verse in 21. But, uh, you know, it starts a little bit earlier, really, in, in verse 19, and it's talking about Abraham. And, and we're going to look at Abraham later on tonight in the book of Galatians. But in talking about Abraham, how God had promised him an heir, and he promised him Isaac. And when Abraham was 99 years old, and Sarah, his wife, was 89 years old, and she had never had a child, God came to him and says, at this time next year, she will conceive. She will give birth, even. She'll, she'll have a boy. You'll have an heir. And, and he was 99 years old when he heard this. And Now, you can imagine, you being 99... You know, as a guy, maybe, but your wife is 89 and she's never conceived. Uh, what are the odds of her now finally giving birth for the first time at age 89? Pretty low, right? In fact, when Sarah got wind of this, what did she do? She laughed. She thought it was ridiculous, right? But look what it says here in, in Romans chapter 4, verse 19. So without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead. I mean, they didn't have Viagra back then, right? So it was now as good as dead. And since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So he looked at it. He didn't ignore it. He didn't pretend that wasn't there. He considered it. And verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And here's verse 21. I think verse 21 was a, an excellent definition of faith. Being fully assured that what God had promised, he's also able to perform. Right? So, being fully assured what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Now, you compare that to Hebrews 11, and now Hebrews 11, 1 starts to make sense, right? For me, at least. It's the assurance of things hoped for, that God is who He says He is, and the convictions of things unseen, that He's also able to do what He's promised, right? That He's able and He will. That, so it's being fully assured, that confidence, that trust, that God is who He is, that what He has promised, He will also do. Does that make sense? That, to me, I think is, is a good definition of faith. So what, what Paul is saying here in Galatians 2.20 says, well, the life I now live in this body, I live by faith. Meaning what? That I am fully assured that what God has promised, which is what? That now Christ lives in me. I'm fully assured that what He's promised, that He will live His life in and through me, that He's also able to perform. He's also able to do it now. He's also able to, to complete what He's called me to do, right? Because God's in us both to will and to do, to work according to His good pleasure. That's what Philippians 2.13 says, right? So 
But Paul's talking about, now I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God, the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. For I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So that's, that's kind of the background now. And now he's going to come back to the churches of Galatia. All right? And in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Now you foolish Galatians. All right? I mean, he's just, he's just starting off right off the get-go. You foolish Galatians. I mean, if there's no doubt now, let me come back to you guys. Right? Now, sometimes it's a little helpful to, to look at different translations. And, and I think it's helpful a little bit to understand these, this in, in light of some other um, paraphrase translations. So let's take a look at some different translations. We're going to look at the first three or four verses here and from the Message Bible by, by Eugene Peterson. He says, you crazy Galatians, right? <laughs> okay, <laughs> tell me what you really think here. I mean, you crazy Galatians, does someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Uh, something crazy has happened, for it's obvious you no longer have the crucified Jesus and clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. Let me put this question to you. Did you how did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue in this craziness? For only crazy people would think that they can complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? Did you go through this whole painful learning process for nothing? Is it not yet a total loss, but it certainly will be if you keep this up? Some strong words, right? I mean, granted, this is a paraphrase, but you know, when we get back to the authorized translation, there's really, it's the same language, it's the same tone, right? He's not mincing words. Does he sound like a man-pleaser? <laughs> Remember, that was the accusation of Paul, right? Oh, he's just trying to keep people happy. Does he sound like a man-pleaser? You crazy people, right? Well, let's take a look at the Amplified Bible. What's, what's the Amplified Bible? Is that a loud Bible for deaf people? No, the, the Amplified Bible is actually closer to the actual translation. They just add some phrases, some thoughts to expand on it. So, so here's the Amplified Bible. So I'll say it a little bit louder. So here it says, now, you poor and silly and thoughtless and unreflecting and senseless Galatians. It's getting a little worse here, <laughs> right? Who has fascinated or bewitched you or cast a spell over you unto whom right before your very eyes, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was openly and graphically set forth and portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit as a result of obeying the law and doing its works? Or was it by hearing the message of the gospel and believing it? Was it from observing a law of rituals or from a message of faith? Are you so foolish and so senseless and so silly? Having begun your new life spiritually with the Holy Spirit, you are now reaching perfection by dependence on the flesh. Right? All right, one more. One more. Let's look at the J.B. Phillips one. All right? How many people have heard of the J.B. Phillips New Testament? All right? I like this one. Oh, you dear idiots. <laughs> oh, you dear, dear idiots. <laughs> Right? I mean, that's just, that's, I love that one. That's my favorite. I mean, there's no hiding the fact, right? You, you dear idiots. Who saw Jesus Christ, the crucified, so plainly, uh, who has been casting a spell over you? I will ask you one simple question. Did you receive the Spirit of God by trying to keep the law or by believing the message of the gospel? Surely you can't be so idiotic as to think that a man begins his spiritual life in the Spirit and then completes it by reverting to outward observ uh, observances. Has all your painful experience brought you nowhere? 
simply cannot, uh, I can simply not believe it of you. Right. So we've got you crazy Galatians, you, you thoughtless, senseless, silly, unreflecting Galatians, and then all oh, you dear idiots. Right? I mean, here's, here's the, 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 really the idea that Paul's getting at here. In, in back here. So let's go back to the authorized translation here. So you foolish Galatians. Now, let's understand this foolish. This word foolish doesn't mean dumb. Right? It doesn't mean, um, you know, that these people had an IQ of about four points. Right? It, the, the, that's not what it's talking about. It's not referring to their intellectual ability. Rather, the, the word unreflecting that the Amplified had is a better idea. Because the idea basically is they're not using their mind. That's why it's so foolish. That's why it's so idiotic. That's, they're unreflecting. They're not thinking. They're not using their mind. That's what he's referring to. Have, have, you, have you actually thought about what you're doing? And, and you know, I, I see that so many times where we come up with, some, with theology or, or some ways to live, and you think, have you really sat down to think about it? I mean, have you really just thought about what you're doing? I mean, it, if you did, it really wouldn't make sense. And, I mean, sometimes I, I wish we would do that with the songs we sing. We sing some songs, and I think, you know, have, did you ever really think about what you just sung? I mean, sometimes for good, and for sometimes, that's ridiculous what you just sang, right? But nonetheless, that's what we have. And so this is what Paul's saying. You know, let's think about this for a second. Let's look at what you believe, and what he's going to do is he's going to now deconstruct it. He's going to approach it with a, with a six-prong argument of really kind of, you know, destructing what they're thinking and showing to them, yeah, this doesn't make sense. This is a ridiculous way of thinking and living. So, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I mean, is there a spell on you? That's how far off the beaten path these guys are, right? Are you guys under a spell? Are you, are you under hypnotic? I mean, what is going on here? Because you're really out to lunch. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This publicly portrayed literally means placarded. Which, or, or, you know, in our version, you know, there's a giant billboard. So it's not like they missed it. I mean, there, it's, it's, it's almost as if that every day on their way to work, when they're walking in on the, on the camel, you know, there was a giant billboard describing that Jesus Christ has died. He's been crucified for your sins, Right? I mean, it's almost like that, that Acts 13, 38 and 39, that forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you all, and to him who believes is freed, justified, made righteous from all things, of which the law of Moses could never make you free, justified, righteous of. Right? So it's almost like that the gospel was put on a billboard for them to so clearly see, because that's what it was when Paul was there. He made it obvious that the crucified Jesus, he was publicly portrayed. Have, I mean, have you forgotten about it? Have you, have you lost sight of what happened? It was so obvious there. So this is the one thing I want to find out from you. Now he's going to ask some questions. Again, he's trying to stimulate their thinking, right? Trying to get them to use their noggin, which they obviously haven't been using. He goes, so he's going to ask them a question, and the question is really going to set them up for what he's going to say to them in verse 3. So this is the one thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, it's interesting, the hearing with faith, again, you're going to see this word faith over and over again, right? But it's hearing with faith. It's the idea of, I, I heard the gospel, but then I acted on it. I received it. You see, there's some that hear it, but do nothing about it. But these people, they heard the gospel, and then they acted on it. They put their faith. They put their trust. They put their dependence. 
they were fully assured that what God had promised, which is what? Righteousness, justification, acceptance, he was also able to perform. He, God, was able to bring it about, right? So how, how did they start off? How were they saved? By faith. God did it, right? And, you know, nowadays, you know, thank you for the Reformation and Martin Luther. That's, that's, that's a question that has been settled. Sadly, it had to be resettled, you know, at the Reformation. You think it was settled back in Galatians 2,000 years ago, but, but it had to be settled again. And today as Protestants, you know, we, we have that sense that we have been saved by faith, not by works, not by striving, not by trying to measure up to, to the works of the law, right? And, and you think about it, you know, how did you receive the Spirit Paul's talking about? It's not just how did you get righteous, but how did you receive the Spirit? Because it's almost like he's, he's pointing back to, think about even in the Old Testament. How many people in the Old Testament received the Spirit based on the works of the law? How many people in the Old Testament received the Spirit as a work of the law? Yeah, none. Zero, right? No matter how good they were, no matter how many of them, be it David or Daniel or Samuel, none of them were able to earn the Spirit. None of them got the Spirit by keeping the works of the law. But what would happen is the Spirit would come upon them, but He was never going to come into them. In, in John 14, um, verse, verse is it? Verse 26, I think it is. Let's look to it. Let's find it. It did. It would come upon them. Um, would it just be one individual at a time? Um, no, I don't think it would be on one individual at a time. I think okay. it, it would come, and, and depending on, on who it was. Um, in John 14, verse 16 and 17, Jesus is talking here, and he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Who's that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that he may be with you forever. This is the spirit of the truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now remember, John 14, is this under the new covenant or old covenant? Old covenant. When did the new covenant come into effect? At the cross, right? When Jesus died, we're going to see that later on tonight, but when Jesus died, that's when the new covenant came into effect. So when Jesus is talking here, he's talking under old covenant. So he says, right now, he's with you, right? So he's with all the disciples. But after I go to the cross, after the new covenant comes into effect, he will be in you, right? So these people here in the church of the Galatians, how would you receive the Spirit, right? Was it by keeping the law? No, no, it wasn't. Right? And they, they know that. That's a, I mean, a simple question. That's a rhetorical question. Well, if you know that, if you were saved this way, well, then are you so foolish? I mean, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I mean, what he's basically doing, and, and the first argument here that he's going to make, he's, he's going to look at, and we're going to list them up here because I want you to see them. He's looking at their experience... To start 
are um, to start or at the start of their salvation. And, and that's really going to be here in verses 2 through 5. Right? So what he's saying here is now, think about it. How are you saved? You're saved by faith. So are you so foolish? You've begun by the Spirit. You're now being perfected by the flesh. It doesn't make sense. This is where, you know, you, the message did a great job. You weren't smart enough. You weren't strong enough to get it. What makes you think you can keep it? Right? And, and so I was thinking, okay, how do I, how do I illustrate this? How do I think about this? And, and, and then God kind of, you know, spoke to me. He said this way. Think of it this way as, as if salvation was you needed to travel at 100 kilometers per hour. That was salvation, right? As soon as you hit 100 kilometers per hour, now you're saved. So that's the goal. And so you think, okay, 100 kilometers per hour. Let's go start training. I got to start running really fast, right? And, and so you start running, you start riding a bike, you start you know, doing all sorts of things, and you start doing your best you can, and the highest you can get up to is what? How fast do you think? <laughs> Eight kilometers per hour. <laughs> Yeah, right, maybe 10, you know, maybe if you're really fast on the bike downhill with the wind behind you, 33, right, I mean, maybe 60, I don't know, but, but you're probably not going to hit 100 kilometers per hour, right, as hard as you try, and so you're just exhausted, you're, you run, and you bike, and you, you're just, oh, you're exhausted on the side of the road, because you've been running all day, trying to hit 100 kilometers per hour, and along comes Jesus in a nice sports car up beside you, <laughs> right, I mean, he shows up in a nice sports car and says, why don't you jump in? And, and you know, this is a fast car. <laughs> we can get to 0 to 100 pretty quick. Well, let's find out how fast we can get there, right? And you think, well, I, I guess. I guess I'm not strong enough. I can't do it. So I'm going to depend upon you, Jesus, and what you provide to do it. So you jump into the car. He, you know, drops the clutch and, you know, takes off and 0 to 100 in about 3.3 seconds. And he's there. You're now saved right? And you're traveling along, and you're whipping along. You think, wow, this was so much easier. This was so much better than me struggling and striving and trying to do it in my own strength. But now I'm here. All right, this is wonderful. Okay, Lord, you know what? I, I think I'm doing pretty good. I appreciate all the work here. And you then open the door, and you jump out, and you start running beside the car as fast as you can. What would happen? It would be pretty ugly, <laughs> right? You would have a severe case of road rash at the end of it, right? I mean, that's really foolish, isn't it? That's idiotic. That's senseless. That's unreflecting. That's silly. That's exactly what the churches of Galatia were doing. I mean, it sounds so silly, but that's exactly what they're doing. And that's what many Christians today are doing. Thank you, Jesus, that you got me saved. I couldn't do it myself, but I'm now exiting the car, and I'm going to keep it up. You got me up to 100. Now it's my job to keep myself there, or maybe I can go a little bit faster. But then it's up to me now to pull it off. And it's just going to be ugly, <laughs> right? And that's essentially what Paul's getting. Are you so foolish that now you think you can keep going at 100 miles per hour yourself, being perfected by your own efforts, by what you can produce? It's not going to work. It's simply not going to work. Did you suffer so many things in vain? Indeed, if it was in vain. I mean... Think about th these people, when they were saved, they went through all kinds of abuse. Because remember, we looked at the history in the book of Acts, how, how there's all kinds of persecution. Paul was run out of town and so forth. Well, what do you think these believers went through? 
they wouldn't have been immune to the persecution. They would have been equally persecuted as well. And so have you suffered so many things? Think about it. I mean, if the Judaizers really, you know, or if it's true, the gospel is that you're saved by, by Jesus, but then you now have to follow the law. Do you think the Judaizers would be really that upset? No. Why are they so upset? Why do they persecute us? Excuse me, persecute us so much? Well, because you're not saved by the law. It doesn't make sense. Think about the history again. Again, he's pointing back to their experience. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? The question is, who's the he? Who's the he? Now, it's capitalized. That's what the translators here have, have said. It's, it's he being God, you know, either the Father or, 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 or Jesus. And, and really, the he is going to depend on how you interpret what comes afterwards. Right? Because, see, it does the He who provides you with the Holy Spirit and works miracles among you. That would seem to imply it's God. Right? Because who gives us the Spirit? God does, right? Jesus says, I'm asking that God will send you another helper. He will send you the Spirit. And really, it's God who works miracles among you. Right? Is God living His life through us? It's not me striving. It's God living through us. That's how Jesus lived. Right? He says, don't you know that the Father, He lives in me, He abides in me, and He does His works? Right? In Acts 2.22, that it was God in Jesus, the man, who was doing the miracle signs and wonders. So, it would make sense now, it's God who's doing all the work. But now, if it's God, it doesn't make sense for the last half of the verse. Do it by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith. How does God do that? Does He do it by works of the law or does He do it by work of the faith? The second half doesn't seem to fit so well with God, right? Now, if we look at the second half as the he being, say, Paul or some other leader in the church, who, you know, they would lay hands on a person, and that's how they would give the Spirit, in essence. They had that kind of a, you know, sign uh, ceremony that way. You know, looking at, does Paul, how did Paul do those miracles, signs, and wonders when he was around them? Did Paul do that by works of the law, or did he do that by works of the faith, by trust, by faith? So it almost seemed like it would be better suited that that would be a lowercase h referring to Paul or some other leader, right? But then, does this part make sense? Well, either way, I don't think it matters. <laughs> because I think the essence, what Paul's getting at here is, whether the he being God or the he is Paul, the essence is, is God living through you, right? That's the works, uh, spirit working miracles among you. And did that happen by following the law, or did that happen by faith? Well, if it was works of the law, then shouldn't the Pharisees be doing all these signs and wonders? Right? Shouldn't you see that from them? But you don't see it from the Pharisees. You don't see it from the Judaizers. But instead, you know, you do see it by those that walk by faith. Right? So his argument being, okay, listen, look at the experience. Look at the results with what they went through, with the abuse, and then, you know, proof is in the pudding. Look at their life. Does that really make sense that the Spirit was, was honoring the works of the law? No, but it was honoring those that are walking by hearing with faith. Right? So he's comparing his own life now with the Judaizers. Does that make sense? Right? So argument number one, look at the experience. Look at what's around you. Now, there's a great warning there because it's really easy to get into a mess when you start building theology based on experience. 
because your experience could be twisted in all sorts of different ways. And, and Paul knows that, so he's going to have five other arguments to back this up, but it's, it's in view, it's supporting evidence, and it's worthy looking at your experience. Just don't let your experience be the determining factor. And as we're going to see, Paul's got five other things loaded in his gun, his six-shooter here, and, and it's, it's very strong. So verse 6 then, he's now going to go, now even so Abraham, and he's going to use Abraham now as an illustration, which is, which is really genius of Paul. Because the Judaizers, they were coming and saying, Abraham, look at Abraham. Abraham got uh, circumcised, so, so do you. You need to be circumcised. Because that was a sign of the covenant. And so he's, he's turning to them saying, now, because Abraham's circumcised, so do you. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to use their very argument and blow it up and destroy it and tear it down and at the same time prove his own case. So in one, one motion here, he's going to destroy the, the Judaizers' case and establish his own. That's why, I mean, it, it's brilliant, really. So even Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So here now, he's talking about what happened in, in Genesis 15, where God had promised him an heir. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you an heir. And, and he entered into covenant, and it's, as a result of that, in verse 6, it says, he believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, here's the thing. It was over 20 years later that Abraham was circumcised. Was Abraham circumcised at this point? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, Romans 4. We're still in Romans 4, right? No, we're not. Let's go back to Romans 4. Romans chapter 4. And we'll, we'll go through this a little bit quickly. Romans 4, starting in verse 9. And he says, Is this blessing then on the circumcised or the uncircumcised only? Also, for we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but uncircumcised. And received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, and that righteousness might be credited to them. See, what Paul's going to do, his second argument is that it has always been. By faith. Salvation's always been by faith. That's going to be what he's going to do in verses 6 to 9. Right? So Abraham wasn't even circumcised at this point. It was long before he received that, that he went through all that. And, and he was declared righteous 20 years before that. So it was, I reckon him as right. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You see, here's the thing. Not all Israel is Israel. That's the point he's trying to make here. And that's the point he makes in Romans 9, verses 6 to 9. And, and we're not going to take the time to look it up, but there he says, not all Israel is Israel. Just because you're born a Jew, that doesn't make you one of the sons of Abraham. But this is what the Judaizers are doing, because we have the inheritance. We're, we're in the family. We're Jewish origin. We could follow up our family tree and end up with Abraham. Paul's saying, no. The heirs, that's the idea of sons, the heirs of Abraham are not just by blood, but rather those that are of faith, right? 
And the whole point of being uh, receiving this righteousness before being circumcised was so that it wasn't just the, the Jews that would be made righteous, but it was also Gentiles. But those that are really in the family of Abraham are those that are by faith, right? So it was always the intent. It was always the intent that we were saved by faith. For Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand, Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you, right? It wasn't this idea that you're going to be the father of one giant nation with a lot of people in it. It's not that you need to become a Jew to be saved. But essentially, that's what the Judaizers are trying to get them to do. Get circumcised, follow the law. Become a Jew, and now you're really saved, right? Do this, and now you're okay. Yes? They could, but and that's a great point, right? That's a great point about the, the circumcision. Because what circumcision is, really, it's a sign. See, turn to Genesis 15, uh, 17. Genesis 17. Um, is it verse 10? Mm-hmm. Yes, verse 11, though. Okay. Verse 11. And you shall circumcise in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Right? So, see, here's the thing. It becomes the sign. For example, I've got a wedding ring ring on right now. Right? This wedding ring is what? It's the sign of me being married. Right? Now, if I take it off, don't tell Viard, if I take it off, (laughs) am I no longer married? No. I'm still married. Right? It doesn't matter whether I wear it or not. But by wearing it, it's just a sign. But you see, what if we make it all about, I took it off, I'm no longer married. (gasps) Now I am. Put it back on. (laughs) Now I'm not. Now I am. Right? I mean, is that, again, sorry. (laughs) Amen. Amen, yes. It doesn't work that way. It's the sign. But, I mean, what we would do is we get so focused and so fixated on the sign to determine. And God says, that's not the issue circumcision never was what decided it. It was just an outward sign. But we make it all about the sign. Think about, I mean, to nowadays, we think, well, circumcision, that's ridiculous. But we do other things, don't we? Baptism. Or if you haven't been water baptism, baptized, you're not really saved. Right? Or speaking in tongues. You know, if, if, you're, not, if you're speaking in tongues, you're not speaking in tongues, then you haven't really fully received the Holy Spirit. You're only partially filled. You need more. Or if you're following the rules of the church, wearing the right clothes, reading from the right Bible, going to church on the right day. I mean, we add all kinds of these crazy religious rules to now say, well, that's going to be the determining factor. And we begin to worship the sign rather than what the sign is pointing to. And so they began to worship the circumcision. That's the thing. God says, no, it was just the sign. 
don't worship the sign. As if they were walking by the billboard that had Acts 13, 38, and 39, and they began to bow down and worship the sign. Oh, praise you, billboard, for teaching us and leading us to God, and oh, we worship you. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? Because the sign is to point you to the real thing. And that's all circumcision was meant to do, was to point them to the real thing. Because verse earlier, it talked about they needing to be circumcised. Well, what God, what's God done to your heart? He circumcised your heart on that cross. The old man being crucified and being buried is God cutting away, rolling away the bad, evil, wicked heart so he can give us a new heart. So how many people have been circumcised? And we all have. Ladies, you too, if you're in Christ. That's the real deal. That's what it means to be circumcised. We're adults. We're adults. We can have a circumcision discussion, right? It's, I mean, that's, that's the thing. We're in Christ. Therefore, we have that circumcision. But the outward's just a sign. It was just a picture that God was trying to make. Does that make sense? Right? So all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer, right? The faithful one, the one who trusted. I guess that makes faith 15, so it's tied with law now, right? So I got a little timeline here for us now to help us understand this in, in a bit more detail. So here's a historical timeline, and, and somewhere back, you know, there was Adam and Eve. And, and I'm going to say roughly about 2,100 years later, based on the biblical account, we've got Abraham showing up, right? And then about 430 years later, the law appears with Moses. Roughly 1,500 years later, that's when Jesus comes and he, he dies on the cross, he's buried. And that brings us now into the church age, which is, you know, so far been approximately 2,000 years. You know, we'll find out how much longer, don't know. Um, and then you got the millennial kingdom, which, you know, by definition lasts about 1,000 years. And then after that, it's, you know, pretty vague, right? That's two chapters, I think, right? Revelation 21 and 22, that's about it. So we don't know what comes after that in great detail, but something else happens after that, right? So this is a pretty, pretty simple, quick timeline. Does that make sense? Um, now, where, where was the law added? The law was added here, right? So before the law, there was no law. Right? Nobody before Moses had the law. Now, granted, when they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they knew what was right, they knew what was wrong, their conscience had been seared with that, but there was no actual law. God hadn't given it to them yet. And then comes Moses, and Moses, he, he gives the law, and so for now, these 1,500 years, the children of Israel are under law, right? They're now living, and they have to follow the law, they have to obey the law, it's what they receive at Mount Sinai. And then along comes Jesus, and what does he say in Matthew 17? I Matthew 5, verse 17, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So what ends up happening now is he fulfills the law, right? So on my timeline here, which is, you know, roughly about 7,000 years, I think, if I got my math right, how much of that is, is under law? Just a small portion of it, right? Just this part here. Now, listen, it's not that the law disappears, because again, what did Jesus say? I haven't come to abolish the law. So the law doesn't disappear after the cross. It's still there, 
but not for the believer because he's now fulfilled the law. And, and that's a point he's going to continue to drive home over and over again. But, you know, really this law only had a really small portion of it. And Abraham was saved 430 years before the law. So there was no law for Abraham to even follow to be saved. Yes? No, we're going to see promise actually is, is a, um, a different word altogether. Law really is, is rules and regulations by which I need to achieve to. Right? Standards and expectations to which I need to measure up to. Be it God's law or really any other law that I, that I put on myself or another puts on me in order to be saved. That's essentially what the law is. right? And so Abraham, 430 years before the law even is, exists, he's been saved. I mean, think about Hebrews 11 again. Go back to Hebrews 11, right? That, that wonderful chapter on faith. Let's turn to it. So, verse 1 now. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gain approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made of the things which is, which is visible. I mean, there it is. There is no such thing as evolution right? It didn't just, you know, all of a sudden grow into something. God formed it. He made it. You know, I'm, the Big Bang Theory, I'm pretty sure it was pretty loud when God spoke it, but that's about it, right? <laughs> Verse 4 then, by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, though it, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Where would Abel fit in our, in our timeline here? Yeah, he, he's probably somewhere here, right? Who's next? What's verse 5? No, where's Noah? Uh, just after, well, a little after Jared. Who's next? Who's next on the, on, in the Hebrews? Um, oh, oh. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Who's, who's next in it? Enoch. Enoch. Where's Enoch? Enoch's before Noah, right? It's getting pretty crowded here. Well, who's next? Then we got Abraham, right? And we got Sarah here as well. Right? And then we got Isaac. And then we got that scoundrel. Right? Make no mistake, he was a scoundrel. Right? And then keep going. And eventually, you're eventually going to finally then start to get into law. But all these people, they're saved by faith, right? So essentially, over all this, it's always been saved by grace, um, saved by grace through faith, right? Now, here's the interesting thing. Here we've got Moses, right? Moses comes in. Now, what about this time period here? Do things change only in this time period? Well, I'm going to point to one of my favorite people in this hall of faith. Uh, skip down to verse 31. Verse 31. This is one of my favorite people in the hall of faith. And what does it say? Verse 31. By faith, Rahab, that wonderful, nice person. What does it say? Rahab the harlot. Now, where would Rahab the harlot go? Would she go before Moses or after Moses? She's after Moses. Oh, that's fine. We'll get to that one. We'll get to that one argument in a second, okay? But let's just deal with the, the, the harlot first, right? So we've got Rahab. 
right? She's after the law, right? Rahab the harlot, the prostitute. How many laws do you think she was living up to? I mean, her name tells us that she broke the law, right? And yet, how was she made righteous? By faith. But you made a great point. Maybe because she's a Gentile. You know, one of those dogs, right? A Gentile. She's not a Jew. So maybe she doesn't count under the law. But it goes on to say, but I don't have time to tell you people like David. See, King David, where does King David fall in this? After, even after Ahab, right? The adulterer, the murderer, right? That's who we're talking about. David. And, and in Romans 4, it's interesting because there where Paul's making this case, saved by faith, not by law, he uses Abraham, but he also uses David. He uses one before the law, he uses one after the law. So David, how is David saved? By faith. How was that? They were fully assured that what God had promised, and we're going to see what he promised later on after the break, but what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Right? So they were looking forward to the cross. They maybe didn't understand that's what they were looking at, but they were sure that God, however you're going to save us, you're going to do it. Whatever you had promised to us is ours, and you're going to make it happen. It wasn't their effort. So they weren't saved by following the law. Right? That's a good answer. He's going to answer that question in verse 19. We're going to answer that tonight. We're going to answer that tonight. So, because that's, that's a great question, right? But you can see here, it's always been through faith. That was always the intent, right? So again, looking at the history now, it's always been by faith, right? Now he's going to look at the third argument, which is the impossibility of the law. And that's going to be verse 10 to 12. Right? So here now, he's going to go on and say, Now, for as many that are under the law, or many others of the works of the law, are under a curse. For it is written, Curses everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, here's the thing. Look what he's saying. This here is, is quote from, from Genesis uh, chapter 27. Uh, why don't we look at it? Go to Genesis, which is always the easy book to find. 27. Sorry, Deuteronomy. A little bit harder. Go to the right. Deuteronomy 27. In the last verse, verse 26, this is what Paul's quoting here. He says there, Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Right? And it's the idea is not abide by the law. Not obey every single one of them. Right? So, what is it? What is he getting at here? What, are the, what, are, what does it mean to be cursed? Well, if you don't do them all, you're in trouble. And how often do you have to do them? All the time. How well? Perfectly. 
right? That's what the law is. The law is a system of blessing and curses. And if you don't measure up at any point in time along the way, you're in deep trouble, right? You're cursed. So let's take a look at what, what the blessing and curses are. In, verse, in chapter 28, the next chapter there, he's now going to explain what this, you know, Moses is going to explain to them what the system of cursing and blessing is. So beginning in verse, uh, verse 2, he said, Now all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed you shall be in the city, and blessed you shall be in the country. Blessed you sh shall be the offspring of your body, and the produce of your ground, and the offspring of your beast, the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you when you come in, and blessed you shall be when you go out. The Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. You will come out against you, uh, they will come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to. And he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And the Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, as he swore to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you are credit, called by the name of the Lord and they will be afraid of you. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and the offspring of your beasts and the produce of your ground in a land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, his heavens, to give rain to your uh, land and in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail, and you only will be above, and you will not be underneath. If you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today to observe them carefully, and do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you, to the right or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Right? So in there, he, in those, what, uh, 14 verses there, he gives a list of blessings. Right? Do this and you'll be blessed. Do this and you'll be blessed. And it sounds really good. Sounds like incredible blessings. Right? In fact, how many people have heard verse 13? You will be the head, not the tail. And so this is what we need to do. And it's from God's word. And, and it seems to make sense. We've got to live that way. We'll keep reading, though. Verse 15. But. Uh-oh. Right? Everything hinges on the word but. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do some, all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that some, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you, right? Overwhelmingly overtake you is the idea here, I think. Cursed you shall be in the city, and cursed you shall be in the country. Cursed you shall be your basket and your eating bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body, and the produce of your ground, and the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock. Cursed you shall be when you come in, and cursed you shall be when you go out. i got to go fast, because, you know, there's, there's about 50 verses of curses here. Right? I mean, it goes on. I mean, it, you keep going all the way to the end of 68. Right? So over 50 verses of curses. So you have 14 verses of blessings, but... If you don't do them all perfectly all the time, you get 53 verses of curses. See what our winner has won, folks. I mean, that's what it is, right? And so he's saying, don't you realize? Don't you see it? Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. Right? You got to do it all. Probably not. Probably not. Right? Because they think, oh, we need to do this. No. Don't you see? Do you really want to go under that system? Do you really want to live that way where you got to do everything perfectly? Let's, let's do a little test here. All right. I want everyone to raise your hand. 
Raise your hand. And let's see how you guys compare to some things, okay? Raise your hand. I'm going to ask you some questions. And when it applies to you, just lower your hand, okay? So if you've ever had a negative, harsh, uh, lustful thought about anyone in your life, at any point in time, go ahead. If you've ever had one, just, just lower your hand, okay? All right? If, if, if you've never had, if you've never had, if you've never had a, an angry, lustful, negative thought against any, yeah, you notice, I'm the only one with my hand up, right? <laughs> yeah, no. We, yeah, you've never had a lustful thought? You've never had a negative thought? Well, then lower your hand. No, if you've never had. Yeah. Yeah, sorry to point you out. <laughs> right? Okay, let's try again. Raise your hand again. Let's try another one. Okay. If you have never lied or ever, you know, embellished the truth or if you've never kind of twisted the truth or never withheld information or, you know, misled someone impartially, if you've never done any of that, you know, lower your hands. Yeah. Yeah. If you never lied, just lie. Okay. Um, all right. Let's try another one. Raise your hand again. All right. If you've if you've never if you've never disobeyed your parents, if you've always honored them, respected them, listened to everything they've said and done, yeah. Okay. There's 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 just three, right? There's just three. Yeah, we're done. We were done back at point one, right? You see, it's not. I haven't done it lately. It's no. If you've ever done it. Guess what's coming your way? 53 verses of curses. <laughs> right? That's the idea about it. Right? So that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. Clearly, no one is justified. You see, what's in the law? What's in the book of law? Notice it says, everyone who is not by, by all things written in the book of law. That does not just include the Ten Commandments. Right? There are some 613 commandments that you would need to obey, right? Here's some of them, right? So here we've got 10 listed here, right? To number one, and these aren't in order of the 10 commandments. So they're just somebody has gone through and, and discovered all, 16 command, all 613 commandments, and they've kind of broken them up. And it starts off with to know that there is a God, not to entertain thoughts of other gods beside him, to know that he's one, to love him, to fear him, to sanctify his name, not to profane his name, not to destroy objects associated with his name, to listen to the prophet speaking in his name. You know, pay attention to that one tonight. Uh, not to test the prophet unduly. Pay attention to that one tonight as well, right? So, I mean, here's it, you know, the first 10, right? You should write these ones down. So, you know, we got 613, so we're going to have to go a little quickly here. So start writing, right? Are you guys getting this? All right? Now, I'll be honest, I got tired of doing this by the time I got to 90. <laughs> There's still another 523 commandments. This isn't even one-sixth of the commandments. This is less than 20% of them. No. Everyone has a scripture verse behind it, right? Now, I went and I've got all 613, if anyone wants to follow them, right here. Just 23 pages, print it out. You want it? Yeah. 23 pages, just print it out and, and go for it, right? I mean, in here, let's see if, how people are doing, you know. Um, one of them is not to wear mixed clothes. So you can't have polyester and cotton together. 
So let's do the test. Raise your hand. Okay. You can't do that, right? Um, you, can't, you can't have animals working together. You're not allowed to do that. That's in there, apparently. Uh, animals working together. That's not allowed to happen. Um, all sorts of things. You're allowed to, you're not, apparently you're not allowed to eat non-kosher maggots. Kosher ones are okay. Non-kosher ones are not. So, yeah. So if you're interested to come and look at them, 613 commands here, and guess what? You got to do them all perfectly. But the moment you fail any one of them at any point in time, you're done. Yeah, so many of them, right? Well, no, I just thinking like if you if you think there, there's something not. I mean, I know there's the do not the do not covet, which is really a private. There's that one where supposedly no one would know. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Does, 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 that's in there. Is somewhere even in the expansion of Leviticus they expand on that, do they? Uh, I don't know if they expand on it. Uh, they might in parts. But, okay. um, but think about it. This is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was to make this point here, right? Was to show to them the impossibility of living this way. Because what they've done is they say, well, you know, we got these 613. I, I think we're doing okay. I, I haven't killed anyone yet. I haven't committed adultery, at least not in Jerusalem. Outside Jerusalem, a little bit different, but, you know, what goes on the road stays on the road, so we have a different rule that way. So that was what they were doing, but, but along comes Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, listen, if you even hated your brother, you're guilty of murder. If you even have a lustful thought about another person, you're guilty of adultery, Right? So he's, he's showing them really the standard, and he's putting it all the way back here. And so clearly, evidently, no one, no one. How many, how, how many people have obeyed the law perfectly all the time? Only Jesus. So clearly, no one is justified by the law before God is evident. Why? The righteous man, the acceptable person, shall live how? Being fully assured what God had promised, he's also able to perform. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, meaning the law is, is opposite of faith. The law is not a second option. It's not that God says, okay, we're going to start with you know, faith, and that didn't work, and so we're going to introduce now the law, and that's going to, oh, that didn't work. All right, now we'll do Jesus. I guess that will be the, the answer, right? Jesus' plan B. No, that's not it at all. It's the opposite. But he who practices them shall live by them. Meaning, if we go back to the law, we are denying Jesus. You can't mix law and faith. You can't mix law and grace. They're polar opposites. It's like, if I were to offer you a nice, cool glass of lemonade, how many people would want that? There's only one little catch. I just got a couple drops of arsenic. Not much, just a couple drops of arsenic. How many people want it now? No, none. Right? So, he who practices them, if you want to live by the law... Okay, but you can't pick and choose some. You got to do them all. And you got to do them all perfectly all the time. Can't blow it anywhere. And maybe, maybe no one else knows about the coveting, but who does? Right? So he who practices them shall live by them. It's impossible. The impossibility of living by the law is what Paul is trying to make clear. Does that make sense? All right. 
This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.